Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 110. The Sixth Frontier War had started on the 21st of December 1834, and this was going to be a dirty affair, a calamity for the Amatkosa. When it began, hints of the Tkosa region did not join in, but something that was first called Makoma's War was eventually to become known as Hintz's War because of what happened to him. The Amatkosa were assaulting the frontier across a wide region from the Winterbach down to Algoa Bay. The English settlers fled to the towns of Bathurst and Grahamstown and Fort Beaufort, Salem. The Boers had set up lagers or entered the towns as well, and the entire frontier was aflame. Governor de Urban had left it too late to travel to the frontier to intelligence gather, and now there was a full-blown war on the go. The entirely unanticipated invasion of the colony had unleashed widespread panic and confusion in the Albany, Somerset and Utenhag districts, and the Amatkosa had inflicted significant damage on the settlements. As you heard last episode, the missionaries were left alone by the rampaging Kosa, who differentiated between what they saw as an enemy and a friend. Back in Cape Town, Sir Benjamin Durbin was in a panic of his own. It was right now that he turned to one of the most extraordinary men of the age, Colonel Henry George Wakelin Smith. Sir Harry Smith, also known as Sir Harry Wackelong Smite. Smith was of modest background, not related to any royalty. His fellow officers whispered behind his back, saying he was too pushy, too ready to volunteer, always on the go, an attention seeker. He had an appalling temper, so these officers learned very quickly to keep their mouths shut around him, and he swore, well, like a trooper. In early 1805, Harry Smith was gazetted as second lieutenant of the Green Jackets, the 95th Regiment of Riflemen, otherwise known as the Rifle Brigade. In a famous story, his mother kissed him goodbye as he left to build his career and said to him, I have two favours to ask of you. One is that you never visit a public billiard room. The next, if you ever meet your enemy, remember, you are born a true Englishman. Unfortunately, the latter part of the comment was going to be forgotten in the vicious Sixth Frontier War. He had no interest in gaming tables, preferring to sit on the back of a horse and smite his enemies. First he was sent to Argentina, or River Plate, as it was known then, then to Sweden, with a large force which lay off Gutenberg but never landed. Then it was to the peninsula to fight Napoleon, to help the Spanish stand against Napoleon's invasion of Iberia. This became known as an inglorious and disorderly retreat, with an army destined to cover itself with glory, disgrace, victory, and misfortune, as Harry Smith wrote later. He was evacuated back to England, but four months later he returned to Spain, serving in the army of Sir Arthur Wellesley, who became known as the Duke of Wellington. It's important to talk about this period in Smith's life, because much of the coming war in Southern Africa was going to be similar to the guerrilla war he fought in Spain, this is not well known. Also not well known is that much of the Spanish countryside looks an awful lot like South Africa. By 1834, the roster of governors and officials who'd fought Napoleon and ended up on the Eastern Cape frontier was long and impressive. Thomas Wilshire, 1819, Major General Sir Richard Bork, Sir Lowry Cole, Francis Wade, Sir Benjamin Durbin, and now Harry Smith. Of course, there was also Colonel Henry Somerset. The Peninsula Campaign, like most other ancient and modern wars in Iberia, 
broke the formal patterns. One moment the engagements were anachronistically classic, the next ruthless and cruelly intimate in its guerrilla sniping. The Spanish War helped leapfrog people like Durban and Smith up the social ladder. Neither had the benefit of family connections or private means to buy themselves military positions. Both were just very good at what they did. No royal affirmative action here. No genetic economic empowerment. No token gestures. It so happened that the Green Jackets, the Rifle Brigade, were the most suitable of all possible regiments for someone like Harry Smith, whose energy and rashness poured into impulsive acts linked to informal arrangements. The brigade was the forerunner of modern commandos, specialist units such as the British SAS, and they were a novelty in the first quarter of the 19th century. They marched faster than other units. They drilled less conventionally. They dressed in bottle green jackets and black facings, which served as camouflage, green for the bush, black for the shade, and used reconnaissance units. They covered their retreat by ambushing followers. Harry Smith rapidly built a name for himself in such an unusual brigade, and the anecdotes are many. Covered in the blood of his horse, he grabbed another and galloped up to Wellington during the Battle of Nivelle. Who are you? Wellington demanded. The Brigade Major, 2nd Rifle Brigade. Hello, Smith. Are you badly wounded? Not at all, sir. It is my horse's blood. There's another story which is remarkable. It's both cruel and enlightening. During the Peninsula Campaign, the British and their allies looted, raped and pillaged as they went. When the town of Badajoz fell, the devastation was so extreme that Smith wrote, The atrocities committed by our soldiers on the poor, innocent and defenseless inhabitants of the city, no words suffice to depict. He was shocked by these Englishmen and their supposed virtue, descending into a hell of rape and murder, and it was his next comment which is so true. Civilized man, when let loose and the bonds of morality relaxed, is a far greater beast than the savage, more confined in his cruelty, more fiend-like in every act. Another historic moment occurred directly after Badajoz fell, at least for Harry Smith and South Africans. He met his future wife. It was after the Battle of Badajoz that two high-born young women fled into the British encampment, seeking to be saved. They were sisters, descendants of Juan Paz de Leon, the Spanish man who founded Florida in the United States. The youngest was a 14-year-old girl by the name of Juana Maria de los Dolores de Leon. Smith was 24, and within two weeks they were married, and basically from then on, she never left his side. I suppose you could say there was only a 10-year age difference, but this was 1812. Juana, aka Lady Smith, travelled with Harry to the camps from battle scene to battle scene, witnessing his fighting at close hand, each battle praying her beloved Enrique would emerge unscathed, and each battle he did indeed. When the Spanish campaign ended, Smith and Lady Smith visited Tsar Alexander I of Russia, where Smith announced, Voila, sire, ma petite guerrière espagnole qui a fait la guerre avec son mari. Voila, sir, my little Spanish warrior who went to war with her husband. From Russia they went to America, with Harry now Deputy Adjunct General to Robert Ross's expeditionary force, which sailed into Chesapeake Bay, then up to Patuxent. It was one fine day that Harry and Lady Smith found themselves at a place called 
Madison's White House in Washington and sat inside that hallowed building with 40 others to have supper. The American president had fled. It was soon after dinner that they set fire to the White House. I shall never forget the destructive majesty of the flames as the torches were applied to beds, curtains, wrote Smith. His men burned down the White House. The happy couple sailed to England, whereupon they were sent back to New Orleans, where the British were defeated in battle, and then back to England, then to Waterloo in 1815 for the end of the road for Napoleon. It was a sickening slaughter there, and that was where he was shot in the foot. And after fighting radical mobs in England, he asked that he and his beloved be sent to the Cape of Good Hope. And it was there he was sent in 1828, and he began to indulge in shooting and what he called violent rides. They say it was late afternoon on the 28th of December 1834 when a military mail carrier galloped into Cape Town with the news that the Amatrosa had invaded the colony on December 21st. Smith was ordered by Durban to go there at once. Stores, ammunition and reinforcements were duly loaded aboard a naval vessel on standby, but Smith was aware that the journey could be slowed by weather. It usually took a week between Cape Town and Algoa Bay. Just in case, he decided to ride there instead, because we're not talking about someone normal here. He first went to the New Year's Eve party, where he was told confidentially by the urban that he'd have full civil and military powers and to adopt any measures he'd like on the frontier. At 12.30am he went home with Lady Smith, and after a three-hour rest, he said goodbye to Juana, leapt on his horse on the 1st of January, 1835, and set off on his 600-mile ride to Grahamstown. Horses were lined up on the route. He would swap rides. That sped up the journey, which took six days. Back on the frontier, the shock of the Corsa invasion had utterly popped the settler smugness bubble. The fact that the Tosa were not intimidated by the empire and the colonial power was frightening to men and women who were afraid of their own bureaucrats. The settlers had been totally indifferent to the suffering of the Amatosa on the frontier, and for that they were now paying a heavy price. Watching the warriors from their little homes were the missionaries. They noted how many of the fearsome men streamed past the stations on their way to and from the colony, at times forcing the other Amatosa converts to join the raids. Missionary Chodlib Kaiser tried to protect a trader called Warren, who sought shelter with him, but the Amatosa dragged him outside and chopped him up. These people have murdered enough of ours, shouted one warrior to Kaiser as he assegaied Mr. Warren to death. This was indeed a harvest of blood and tears. Up the road at Tumi Mission Station was Thomas Brownlee, a London Missionary Society preacher. He'd gone to live amongst the Diani Chachu's people and was riding along the banks of the Buffalo River just below the Amatola Mountains with his sons Charles and James. They were coming home for Christmas from school and as they returned to the station, Brownlee and his boys found themselves facing a stream of Amatosa jogging towards another settler farm in order to kill the inhabitants and raise it to the ground. The Brownleys were not threatened by the passing warriors who asked him if he knew where Henry Somerset was. He didn't and Brownlee asked them why they were fighting. Have you not heard a chief has been shot, and is that no cause for war? They said. Brownlee and other missionaries watched the flood of seized animals flowing back into Tosa territory from the farms. Later he began to hear the heavy firing from around the Amatolas as a struggle was joined. Unlike the English settlers, except for a few like the Bowkers, the Boers knew exactly what to expect when the first alarm sounded. 
This was a visceral change, something that stunned men and women when they first saw an Amakosa war party. Naked and masked from head to foot in red clay, their heads shaven with a beaded band adorned with a blue crane feather, a vindictive look in their eyes. The colonists were confronted by this menacing sight, red bodies ablaze on the side of a hill whistling war cries, a terrible blood-curdling moment, particularly at night, the cold assegais cutting through the dark. It took nerves of steel to fight, and fight the settlers began to do. So did the Boers, on their isolated and scattered farms, psychologically better prepared for action than the English. The Boers had a system to defend against such attacks, and they had confidence in their shooting skills. Their Khoikhoi servants, who were crucial as reloaders, later to be known as Achtereyes, their huge packs of savage dogs which the Amatosa feared. It was the dogs that warned an attack was imminent. One Boer farmer by the name of Kutza heard his dogs barking, his servants fled immediately, and the men of the farm had prearranged places outside the farmhouse. They ran to their firing positions, listening to the Amatosa whistling, the sheep bleating, the cattle bellowing, the dogs barking. The enemy storms in to cut the cattle loose. Others want to storm the house. One of them is shot dead in the doorway with a broken assegai in his hand. The noise is dreadful. The attack was beaten off. At daybreak, the Kutsa family was joined by the Khoi servants and they fled their home. This was the pattern with the Boers, whose outlying farms bore the brunt of the assault on settler homes. They drove off the remaining animals, their women and children in front, the men at the rear to cover their escape. Then they'd meet up with other survivors and form a lager, encircling a farmhouse or some other point of defence, then use their deadly collective firepower to drive off the attackers. On Christmas Day, Makoma and Charlie's warriors spread their destruction across the countryside near Fort Beaufort. They had skirted the Cut River first, avoiding the settlement of Koikoi, but later attacked the settlement, as I mentioned last episode. Hinsa was also now beginning to receive cattle from the raids and became more actively involved in the frontier war. He had not sent his own men into the colony as this war began, but had now moved from sympathy to full support. Hinsa realized that the British were going to target all Amatkosa, and as king he was a direct target. A British settler called John Collett, living near Fort Beaufort, wrote how unusually red the sun was as it rose on Christmas Day, and he thought it an ominous sign. Little did he know. He set off on his road towards the town who was expecting supplies being driven up by his khoi workers. He found one worker on the road who warned that the wagon had been seized. Stubbornly, Collett rode onwards, and upon rounding a corner, saw about a hundred Amatosa ransacking his wagon, stealing the sugar, the raisins, and cutting up his linen. Collett was stunned to see many of the Amatosa were carrying muskets. He rushed home to prepare for an attack. Later, Boers on a wagon drove up with the body of a young Boer, who he knew mangled by innumerable assegai wounds. Wagons continued to pass, each with their own story of death and destruction. The Boers decided to use his farm as a lager and drew up a circle, and they watched smoke rising from the other farms, and then the circling vultures appeared. It is a horrible sight, said one Boer, to see our farms on all sides had been burned. As far as we could see in every direction, smoke rose like heavy clouds. For the Boers, losing their farms was bad, but losing their livestock was worse. They could rebuild their basic shelters, whereas the cattle meant survival. 
A little later, the Amatkoza attacked Fort Brown north of Grahamstown, and a British officer there ordered the Boers' cattle to be driven away from the fort, believing that the Tkoza would take these and leave them alive. A few of the Boer women ran out and began driving the cattle back, competing with the British soldiers in a kind of chaotic moment. Finally, the twelve or so Boer men threatened to shoot the British soldiers if they tried that again. Then that night, the twelve Boers' accurate fire was credited with driving off more than a hundred Amakosa. At another farm close by, a military patrol arrived on the 26th of December and found two Boers alive. A third had died. But it's what they'd done that was remarkable. Hundreds of Amakosa had attacked them for days, and the three had held off this attack. Only two Boers had guns. The other used the Amakosa assegais and threw them back at his attackers. The bush in which they were hiding, was described as resembling a porcupine. There were so many assegais sticking out of it, and the three Boer defenders had been hit numerous times. One had nine wounds. Another had been pulling the assegais out of his own body and throwing them back as well. Eventually, he died from blood loss. It was this war of 1834 and 1835 that was to convert the English settlers in particular to a more militarized group. Before this, most of the 1820 settlers did not have firearms or ammunition. They believed they were being protected by the empire. It's true, some had learned to hunt, but the general culture was to issue arms. The experience of the Sixth Frontier War changed this forever. The British settlers had never served on commandos. They had no experience at offensive organization or defensive structures in a war zone, which of course is what a frontier is. The shock of the Amatkosa assault changed these settlers into frontiers men and women in a way that the preceding peaceful but blithely oblivious lifestyle could not. The main Amatkosa thrust into the Albany district towards Grahamstown, Bathurst and Salem was across the Great Fish River at a place called Trompeter's Drift. Thousands of Amatkosa had crossed here, mainly warriors fighting for Nklambe chief Mplala, Ngayeko Zimbalu and Potomani Zamadange. They headed west driving off the cattle and horses and killing the male settlers as they went. They left the women and children alive. This was the area of the controversial clay pits from where the Tkosa had mined red ochre for their body ornaments and had been a flashpoint for years with the British farmers. If you remember, these pits were alongside an Irishman Mahoney's farm and he regarded the continued mining of the ochre as trespassing. Of course, the Tkosa had been mining ochre there for hundreds of years. The Amatkosa regarded him as a trespasser too, so there was a never-ending saga between the Irishman and the Tkosa. It was pre-Christmas when Mahoney received word of a war party on its way. He packed up and began to move to the Fish River Drift, which was a military post nearby. He didn't make it. An Amatkosa warrior party surrounded the wagons and proceeded to kill the men, including old man Mahoney, whose throat they cut but they then threw a shawl over his widow's shoulders and told her to run off, while her son, who was of junior school age, tried to stop the Amatkosa warriors from taking the oxen. They merely ripped the reins from his hands and told him to humber, run. The women and children ran off. Two Khoi Khoi servants took one group of children on a 40-mile trek to Grahamstown. It was this continued assistance from the Khoi that led to the Amatkosa deciding that they'd eventually attack the Khoi as well. While most of the settlers were unable to respond except by flight, others were made of hardier stuff. 
The Bowkers, who are introduced in the episode dealing with the arrival of the 1820 settlers, were not your usual ex-British suspects. They were exceptionally tough and had taken to the frontier like ducks to water. They had picked up advanced shooting and other frontier skills, and their sons had married into local Boer families. Whereas most of the English settlers continued to refer to England as home, they did not. They had arrived in their home. As someone said to me recently, there's your birth home and your living home. Some people make the mistake of always referring to their birth homes as home, thus reinforcing the myth that they're not of the place in which they live. This causes psychological convulsions because this means you never know where your home is. So, we must make a decision and then interact fully with our lived homes. And this is what the Bowkers were doing. They heard their Boer neighbours were packing their wagons as the Amatosa swept into the colony. And so they packed up their family silver, a seven-branched candelabra, expensive china, a hoard of valuable possessions, and piled these into a tablecloth and took the cloth into a darkened valley below their house and buried their family treasure in an ant bear's hole. They took great pains at hiding the digging and joined the wagon train out of the area back to Bathurst. This was the last they or anyone has seen of their silver. After the war, they returned but could never find their location. Grass fires and new vegetation had sprung up. So somewhere out there is all the silverware. Next, we'll hear about the battles of Bathurst, how Harry Smith ended the Sixth Frontier War and became implicated in the cold-blooded murder of Hinsa, the Thaleka king, and thus setting in motion a whole new series of revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.